Welcome back, everyone, to the Cross the Crown podcast. Josh Copen, Doug Gooden, and we're so happy to uh, have you listen. As, as as every podcast now starts, everyone I've ever heard people say, "However you're listening, or wherever you're listening, we appreciate it." So thank you, Doug. Um, we teased it last week at the end, so let's bookmark it now. The new Covenant School of Theology is completely online. That's exciting. That's great. You're teaching. Others are teaching. And uh, all kind of classes from Romans to marriage to hermeneutics to whatever. It's available now at New Covenant School of Theology dot org. That's right. That's right. And we've uh, gotten applications from all over the world. Which is, I saw which that. Is, uh, pretty fascinating. So, yeah, yeah. it's good. And um, not not too expensive. And there's all kind of programs. We'll talk about that at the end. And uh, let's just say this. You can learn from your home. You don't have to move to Louisville or Dallas or New Orleans or Kansas City or uh, is Jackson, Mississippi, where uh, RTS. You don't have to go to any of those places. You can stay right where you are in the comfort of your home and learn. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> it is exciting. It's good. Yeah. Good time to be it alive. Is. It is actually a really good, like, it's nice. I mean, there's nothing wrong with moving those places, but my goodness, saving a lot of money and time and Makes things easier on your family if you're married. I'm sure um, you don't have to rely on on um, you know. I just would imagine it creates a lot less stress in a marriage if you can stay at home and learn anyway. So that's good. All right, Doug. So one of the things you might learn at the New Covenant School of Theology is eschatology. Now I haven't taken the class there yet, so I don't know. I know your view on Revelation. We've talked about it a little bit. You're the Optimal, as you like to say, uh, <laughs> you go back and forth, mill, post-mill, whatever. You're not a dispensationalist, right? Like that, that would, we could rule that one out. That one's but out, yes. In, in the view of mill and post-mill, 80-70 is very important. Uh, I don't know enough about the dispensation view. Um, I know they don't think a ton significance happened with 80-70, but what we're talking about with 80-70 is the sacking of Jerusalem, correct? Jerusalem is taken out. And it's not just by Rome, it's kind of, the Jewish people kind of did it themselves, too, if, if you read up on it. It wasn't just Rome coming in and wiping it out. So why is that place such a historical, theological significance to people? And if it's that important, why is it not mentioned in the canon? I know you could say, well, Revelation might get to it, but depending on your data. But it, generally speaking, does it have a theological significance? We know it has a historical significance, but how much? Go ahead, answer that easy question. <laughs> yeah, that's easy. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, theologians uh, and pastors, scholars debate this, and uh, it really does impact your view of uh, a lot of things in the scripture and or your view of the scripture impacts your understanding of the significance of the fall of Jerusalem in mm -hmm. 70 AD. Would it be all uh, scripture too? Real quick, I don't want to, I didn't mean to interrupt, but even how you would read Daniel, et cetera, would be... Yeah, okay. absolutely. And I will argue... Um, that it is in the Bible. Uh, I would say that in Daniel 9, it is, uh, it is there. Uh, we can look at that if you want, or look at that in a future podcast, but I believe it's, uh, it's alluded to there and, and actually more than alluded to. Uh, but Jesus himself, I believe, predicted it on, in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, the, uh, the phrase, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Well, depending on your view of other things, that word, that little two-word phrase, this generation, is significant. Of course, dispensationalism looks at that and says, 
whatever generation is alive when the uh, tribulation is about to come upon us, uh, that generation will see all of the tribulation, all the things, the plagues and the bowls of wrath and so on promised in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, and remember how Lindsay um, was famous for writing a book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And because Israel was formed again as a nation in 1948, he predicted that uh, that the end, the generation in Jewish categories is about 40 years. So he predicted that uh, 1948, 40 years after that is 1988. And so that would be when Jesus returns. And of course, Jesus not did not return in 88. And he wrote another one basically saying I was wrong and miscalculated. It's 89. And, you know, here we are many years later and Jesus still hasn't come back. Uh, but that that really drove that that passion was the reinstatement as a nation of Israel saying, oh, Jesus said within 40 years, within a generation, this is going to happen. I think Jesus was talking to his disciples. Well, I know he was. And I believe he was talking about his generation, his disciples within 40 years of when he made that statement, the things he was talking about would happen. And what did he just talk about in Matthew 24? There will be not one stone left upon another of this temple. Remember the the, the, the way that the Matthew 24 starts is the disciples are in awe of the temple. This gorgeous temple, Solomon had built it, then Herod made it, in some counting, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it's glorious. And Jesus says, yeah, you're impressed by this. The day is coming when not one stone will be left upon another. It's going to be destroyed, which grabbed the Jews, the, the disciples, because this was the center of everything Jewish, and they didn't understand the fullness of all that was going on yet. And what happened in 70 AD was, yeah, the Romans came and they destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. And apart from the Wailing Wall, which you can still go to, it is uh, it is no more. I think Jesus was talking about the fall of Jerusalem and it establishes him as the prophet par excellence because he said this is going to happen. And so from a theological standpoint, I think you touched on that a little bit from a historical standpoint. Um, everyone acknowledges AD 70 happened, not just. Christians, but atheists, Jewish scholars, etc. Um, yeah, 8070 was kind of a big deal in the in the history of of the Jewish people, and the temple hasn't been rebuilt since. So that's one of the arguments Amil and Postmill people will make about the nation of Israel as dispensationalists think about, right? It hasn't been rebuilt in 2000 years. Um, from a theological significance, uh, some pastors will say, no, there's no theological significance. The theological significance was the cross and Pentecost. That is the theological significance in the New Covenant. Um, does eighty seventy play any theological significance in your view or in others that you've just come across? Yeah, a very important one. So think back to the origin of the Old Covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel. It started on Mount Sinai. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and uh, if you read through Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, you see these listings of blessings and cursings, where God says, on the one hand, if you keep my commandments, I will bless you, and it's all temporal blessings. I will make you prosper in every way. You'll have victory over all of your enemies. Uh, everything you touch will turn to gold, basically. I'm, I'm paraphrasing and, and changing, but really, every heaven on earth is almost what he promised him. But he says, alternatively... If you disobey, if you break my statutes, I will destroy you. I will crush you. Uh, the, the most chilling passage is in, in Deuteronomy 28 for me is he says, just as this is Moses speaking, just right. as the Lord delighted over you 
to make you prosper, he will delight over you to make you perish. Mm. Hard words. And he describes in great detail what would happen. You mentioned earlier that uh, the Jews almost did this to themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all in the curses in Deuteronomy 28. Mm. He says that mothers will eat their young. And these women who were considered polite and delicate and refined would be so hardened by their hunger, they would refuse to share their child that they are cooking share it with others who are starving. I mean, everything about this is horrible. It's the most horrific thing you can imagine. And if you read Josephus's account of the fall of Jerusalem, it's eerie how similar his account of, of that siege and what the Jews did to one another. If you compare that with Deuteronomy 28, it's almost like he was reading Deuteronomy 28 and just listing what happened, exactly what happened. So theologically, uh, well, let me back, let me back up a little bit. So he gives him the, the commands, gives him the covenant. He, he gives him the blessings and curses. And you remember when Moses is up on the, on the mountain to receive the 10 commandments and the Jews are having a party and Aaron tells them to pull all their jewelry together. And he makes the golden calf and they bow down before the golden calf and say, this is Yahweh. This is our Lord who led us out of Egypt. And of course, God there is furious as Moses get down there. Uh, I'm going to destroy these people. Get out of the way, Moses. I'm going to unload on these people and I'll make a great nation out of you. And Moses pleads and begs with God not to do that. And at the time, God says, okay, I've heard you. I won't destroy them now. But on the day that I punish, I will punish. I'm convinced that the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD is the final fulfillment of the curses of the old covenant meted out on Israel. And now that is the covenant's over. It is, um, this is kind of a side question, but oftentimes God used, all the time, God would use um, other nations to punish his people. But then he would turn around and punish those nations for punishing his people. Uh, do you think the fall of Rome, the destruction of Rome, God was still punishing Rome for punishing his people? Was that still happening? Or because of the theological question and importance, would the nation of Israel still had a role at that point for God to punish those who he chose to punish his people? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Babylon, Persia, Cyrus, uh, all those nations that were used uh, as God's tool of chastisement, mm -hmm. uh, then he would turn around. But those, uh, hmm, those kings, Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, uh, and others would, uh, would take great glory in themselves and say, I did this. Uh, and the Romans probably did that too. I don't know. Uh, because we have such clear revelation that God punished the other nations, does that carry over to the Roman Empire? I don't know. They certainly uh, made gods of themselves. I mean, Augustus, the name itself means exalted one. Uh, so he put himself up as God. So I don't know that God needed other incentive to, uh, to destroy mm -hmm. them from their own pride and arrogance. Uh, was it a result of them destroying Israel? Eh, I don't know. It's a good question. Okay. And then from, let's say you come to faith, you're a, you're a new believer, um, you're studying this, and how would you know if you were to come to Revelation or was it First Thessalonians or whatever, and, and just be like, 
I mean, you're not going to know about 8070 unless you study history. So what do we do with that for people to try and put that into context? Because we are saying it's important. And that's why I mean it's not specifically spelled out it in scripture. Um, it's a prophecy, right? It, things are pointing to it is what we're saying. But if it's not there, and all of a sudden you hear your pastor go, well, in 8070, that ended it. And, uh, you know, it's we're now in the, the the new age. And that's that's what Hebrews was talking about. Um what do we do with the, the new believer, the person who's really confused by that date? Well, the book of Revelation is a different cat mm-hmm. category altogether. Uh, even if you know your history, that's a very right. difficult book. And it does play into this discussion, mm-hmm. so we can come back to that if you want to. Um, yeah, I, th- there are lots of things we can't understand about Scripture 2,000 years removed if we don't have history. Uh, Babylon, Babylon is not a, a nation. Mm-hmm. So who cares about Babylon uh, now it is, I guess you would say, well, it is listed specifically in scripture, but we, we need, we gain a lot of information, uh, about Babylon from extra biblical understanding in the vision that Daniel has of the giant statue, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. And then the Medes and Persians are the next layer. But after that, you've got the Greeks and the Romans, and uh, he doesn't mention Alexander the great by name, for instance, but pretty clear that's who he's talking about as far as that uh, that thigh section. So I would just say we praise the Lord that we do have historical evidence and documentation of all of this. If I were a new student reading, uh, a new Christian reading Matthew 24, the plain reading would suggest this generation will be around to see all these things that I've just told you about. So I would read that and say, huh, is there something that happened that would fulfill what he just said would, would occur within a generation. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to attribute something. So I'll say, I think I heard this. Um, it was R.C. Sproul Jr. Who pointed that passage out to his dad. He goes, dad, unless he's saying this generation means generations in the future, then that has to mean the people right in front of him. And I think that changed mm-hmm. R.C.'s view hmm. on uh, what was going on. And in the book of Hebrews where it talks about like our passing away or, uh, we believe that that's kind of probably pointing to 8070 as an end, a complete end to the Jewish culture, the Jewish way of life as God's people. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right. It, yeah. Yeah. And, and several other, other passages, um, Romans 11, you know, there's a lot of controversy over Romans 11, a lot of disagreement uh, and, and, and we just, it's hard to understand. He says all Israel will be saved. And the traditional reformed view is that that is, there's going to be an influx of Israelites, of Jews to Christ right before the end. And that's, that's a popular view. And that's a, a, a very plausible view. Uh, my own view is that Paul is describing what is about to come upon the, the nation of Israel in 70 AD. He uses the word now. If you look, just trace through Romans 11 sometime, the word now. God has now shown mercy to you Gentiles so that he now will harden the Israelites. Uh, It's all in the context of judgment, a judicial hardening. And then he's going to now show mercy to the Jews. What I think is being said there is the hardening of Israel has come to an end with the fall of Jerusalem. And now Israel is like every other nation. They need Jesus, but they are no longer judicially hardened. You remember Isaiah, right? Isaiah 6. We sing about it. We love it. Sproul made it, made it famous with a great uh, exposition. I see the, the king sitting on his throne and the glory filling the smoke and billowing out, billowing out and all that. And then the, 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 the great call to missions, every missions conference, you've heard this. Who will go for us? God says, here am I, send me, says Isaiah. 
but we stop reading. We stop reading when he says, here am I. Keep reading the very next few verses. God says, okay, I'm going to send you to a people who have eyes, but they won't see. They have ears, but they won't hear. I'm sending you to preach truth to them, not so they will repent and believe in me, but so they will be hardened. You are going to preach to a people who are deaf and blind spiritually, and you're just going to cauterize their hearts, and they're going to continue their rebellion. I mean, mm. who wants to be a missionary right. when you are told that you're going into a people that are going to reject you? Mm. Jesus quotes that, and he says, this is why I'm speaking to the Pharisees in parables. And then he quotes that passage. So his generation of Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, and so on, that they will hear the truth, but they will be deaf to it. They will see the incarnate Christ and they will be blind to him. Why? Because he said, this generation, his generation, he, he was talking to, this generation is receiving the blood of all the prophets that were spilled going all the way back to Abel. So every time someone destroyed one of God's people unjustly, he's now bringing the full and final destruction of God's judgment on those people to that generation. So they were under a judicial hardening. The reason the vast majority of the Jews rejected Christ was because they were under judicial hardening by God as punishment for their forefathers breaking the covenant, and then they followed in their footsteps. They had their own sin and wickedness and blindness. I think Romans 9 is saying that time is coming to an end. That hardening of Israel is coming to an end. I think it happened with the final blow of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And now, again, this is why we should take the gospel to the Jews, because now they are no longer judicially hardened, and they can come to Christ just like every other nation can. And Paul has said part of the reason he's now going to the Gentiles is make the Jewish people jealous. So, exactly. yeah, they're, they're, they're coming in. And by the way, that Isaiah passage, um, man, did our president completely take that out of context <laughs> a couple no. of weeks ago and just... No. Uh, I know a lot of military people will use that. And even in that context, they're, they're, they're not using it properly. And it's, uh, it's, it's scary uh, for people who take that out, out of context. Do you, you went and got your Bible. I'm guessing you want to make a point. <laughs> I have mine open here and mine open to that Hebrews passage. Do you want to go? You got your Bible for a reason. Go ahead. Yeah, Put your glasses so, on. It's about to get serious. A <laughs> couple of passages that I think are very important to understand this. Okay. So one is Matthew chapter 21. Okay. Matthew 21. We'll wait for the pages to turn. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so right, if you're driving, ahead. don't turn there. I'll okay. read it to you so that uh, <laughs> so you don't hurt anybody. So here is, uh, is our Lord again, speaking to the Jewish authorities, and uh, he's asking them hard questions like he usually does. So starting at verse 28, okay. but what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and mm -hmm. went. The man came to the second and said the same. And he answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. So you see the scene, right? It's very simple. Man goes to one son and says, hey, go do something. The son says, I won't. But later turns around and says, okay. And he goes and does it. Second son says, I will. But then he doesn't. And Jesus just asked them a simple question. Which of the two? Because they both had responses. One said, I'll obey you, sir. The other one said, I won't obey you. But then one did go obey. Which is the one who did the will? Well, obviously the one who changed his mind and said, yeah, I am going to do what right. the Father tells me to do. Then Jesus's response, truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. 
For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. So you see the difference? Tax collectors, prostitutes, they were not pleasing God. And then they heard the message of Jesus, and now they turned and did please God by receiving Christ. The Pharisees claimed to be pleasing God, but then the Messiah comes and they reject him. So the repentant prostitutes, tax collectors, other sinners are the ones who are doing the will of mm. God. The, the Israelite leaders did not. Uh, so in seeing this, you did not even feel remorse afterward to believe him. It goes on now. Listen to another parable. Now he's quoting to quoting from Isaiah and alluding to Isaiah. Isaiah told this, God through Isaiah told this parable of a vineyard. Mm. And it was Israel. The vineyard was Israel. And God says, I've, I've given you water and I've protected you from the heat of the sun. And I've put a fence around you and kept the wild animals out. I've given you every possible reason and way to prosper and be a fruitful vineyard. And alas, there's no fruit. And, and it's a statement, a, a prophecy of judgment. All right, so he's Jesus is quoting that from Isaiah. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So now he's taking it his own way a little bit here. Mm -hmm. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. So we're going to find out these are prophets, these are apostles, these are these are people who God sent to bring Israel to the place of fruitfulness, and instead of receiving God's messengers, they persecuted them. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first. They did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son. Now Jesus comes into his own story. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son, but when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. This is the one who's going to inherit the vineyard. Mm -hmm. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? He puts this question to these Pharisees, to these leaders. What's going to happen to these mm -hmm. people who killed the son of the owner? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds in the proper seasons. They get it. They at least understand the point of the parable. If, if these vine, the, the, the tenants of the vine vineyard, if they kill the heir, then the owner is going to come and remove them completely, kill them and give it to somebody who will do the right thing. Jesus said, did you never read the scriptures? You scribes, you, you teachers of the law. Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, Jewish leaders, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So by the way, the word uh, in verse 43, people, is literally the word nation. I'm going to take this kingdom away from you, Jesus says, and give it to a nation. The kingdom was ripped 
out of the hands of Israel and given to what we now know is the church, the holy nation, the royal priesthood that Peter talks about using the same terminology applied to Israel. So here we have Jesus himself predicting they would reject him as the heir and the vineyard owner, God himself, the father, would rip it out of their hand and bring them to a wretched end. That's the fall of Jerusalem. Well, and, you know, you go back to Romans, you know, Paul's argument, too, is that not all who have Abraham are descendants of Abraham is, mm-hmm. is, is kind of tied in with this. And then before you get to Matthew 24, at the end of Matthew 23, you got Jesus lamenting over his people. And it's kind of it kind of mirrors what Paul says. Right. If I could, I would, but I can't, right? If I could save you all, I would, but it's almost like what Jesus is saying. I would take you all in and gather you, but no, I'm not going to. So, um, and all that is, like you said, just precursor to what's about to happen, the judgment that is going to happen to them. So uh, based on that, you would have to say just beyond uh, Pentecost and the cross, it is finished. There is a theological significance um, to what happened today and the cursing of the fig tree. You know, I mean, to me, it doesn't get more obvious than that. It's also like the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah there, and then they disappear. And they're like, he's like, listen to them. It's like, be done with the old covenant. It's the same thing with the temple and the nation of Israel. Them as a role in God's plan is going to be over, is going to be done. Like, should have should have registered with people. Well, and it just part of the reason we don't get it is because we really don't have a good understanding of the old covenant. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go back to theology 101, even just word study 101. A covenant is a contract. It's a pact. Theologians try to make all kinds of other, you know, extended definitions of it, but it, it's really just a contract. And God shows up and he enters into this contract with Israel. And he says, "Here are the terms." You obey me, and here's the list of things you must obey. And if you do, I bless you. If you don't, I destroy you. Those are the terms of the contract. That's it. It's, it's, uh, it's that simple. And he, he did gave the priesthood uh, as a, um, a, a precursor of the gospel, and the substitutionary atonement and all that. But even the writer of Hebrews tells us the law was given on the basis of the priesthood, not the other way around. Anyway, I'm getting into a whole other theological mm-hmm. category that probably is too much to get into here. But the point is, it's a very simple contract. Obey and live, disobey, and I will kill you. Those are the terms. I will utterly destroy you. I'll bring the plagues of Egypt back on you. I will make your skin hurt. I will, uh, and, and eventually I will bring a nation and it will swoop down and it will destroy you. That was the, co- the the contract. Well, they broke the contract on day one. Mm. And so really, God showed them mercy for a millennia. He could have at any time destroyed Israel completely because the contract said, I can destroy you completely. And if we remember in Exodus 24, when God laid out the uh, term of the covenant, co- covenant uh, Israel said, I'm in. Where do I sign? Right. They received the covenant and entered into it. And so at any point after they sinned, God could have destroyed them. Well, why didn't he? Because there was also the plan of redemption where he was preserving the seed to get to Christ, of course. Hmm. But now that the Christ has come and they have rejected the Messiah, they've rejected the heir, the son himself. Now God says, I'm going to bring the final 
terms of the covenant to bear on the nation of Israel. And in 70 AD, he brought Titus down and they obliterated the Jews. I would say this discussion is really good. And this would go back to the second or third one uh, podcast united together is why church history is important, why you need to study it, why you need to know, um, and not just church, well, yes, church history, but Jewish history is important. It's, it's very important for us to know the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people think in the New Covenant, especially New Covenant theology, we ignore, you know, we talked about the Marcionite charge. It's not true. And this is why it's really important. Paul quotes the Old Testament in Romans all over the place. He quotes it in Ephesians. Our Lord quotes it. It's clearly important to understand what it means. You know, I just saw someone say part of the issues of the church is we don't sing the Psalms or know the Psalms enough. Well, that's true. But in the context of Christ has come and fulfilled those things. But please, yes, get into your Old Testament. Understand what's going on. And I think you and I talked about this before, but Deuteronomy talks about the punishment that's going to come to them. Uh, You mentioned this earlier. Well, in 1 John, it basically says, yes, there's still discipline, but punishment, the eternal punishment of God's people has been removed. In Deuteronomy, it's saying there's going to be eternal punishment for not following these things. So it's, you know, just please get into your word and study it, even the hard stuff. And if you don't know, Go to someone like Doug, you know, your pastor, whomever, and ask, what do I, how do I get through Chronicles? It seems so repetitive. Help <laughs> me here. Right? Like, it's okay. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Like that. Let, me, let me give you one more here before you, yeah. uh, I, I can see you're transitioning out, but uh, it's so yeah. important. Mm-hmm. So Matthew 23, a couple chapters okay. after, you know, this is the scathing uh, curses the woes, upon right? the Pharisees. Yes. yes. Woe to you, scribes of Pharisees. That is a an official prophetic term of cursing. He's pronouncing mm-hmm. God's judgment on the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you do this, you do that. And it's it's just, yeah, it's horrible. Uh, I'll, I'll go to verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So they understood that that was wrong of their predecessors. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets, because you're going to do the same thing to my apostles mm-hmm. and to me. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. That word, fill it up. You are the sons of those men hundreds of years ago who killed Isaiah, and, or at least persecuted Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. You are their sons, and, and now your cup is going to be full of your wickedness, and it's going to bring God's wrath. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. You know what a brood is? It's a group, right? Nope, it's offspring. Oh. A brood is a is a group of babies, a group of, of offspring, chicks or something. He calls them a brood of vipers. Well, a viper is a snake. Mm-hmm. I think he's alluding here probably to Satan. You're the mm-hmm. offspring, uh, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. We'll do battle. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, again, the apostles, the prophets, the missionaries of the first Mm. century. Some of them you will kill and crucify. James, for instance. Peter, although that is the Romans who did. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Obviously, they didn't if we're assuming this is the old testament barakiah right um but he you did because you're you're in the same league with him you're he's now putting them all in the same group 
Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Same word he's going to use in the very next chapter when he talks about the fall of Jerusalem. It's going to happen in this generation. And then, this is what you were referring to a moment ago, and then he weeps, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. That is a direct quote from Daniel chapter 9, which predicted the fall of Jerusalem. Now, the dispensationalists say there is a multi-thousand-year gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. The 70th week of Daniel is when Jerusalem falls. And specifically, the words are, it's in desolation. The abomination of desolation is the fact that Jerusalem lies desolate. It's destroyed. Here, Jesus is saying, I'm talking to you people, you Pharisees. Jerusalem of my day, he says, your house is left to you desolate. I'm going to destroy your house, the temple. I'm going to destroy your city in direct fulfillment of Daniel chapter nine. The 70th week took place, I'm convinced, in the 70 AD. Okay. And this is obviously just a huge topic. There's a lot. Um, uh, I like Shriner's commentary on it, even though he and I might not agree with the dating. He's still an on guy. Think he's an old like a 90 80 90 kind of guy um any anyone you recommend on this topic um who you talking about read? the book of revelation what would you mean he's an 89 well guy? i'm sorry yes uh he was a revelation guy but he folds in he still talks about the importance of 87 who do you recommend at least on the importance of 80 70 to read um there's a lot of good stuff there's a book i, I just found it uh this morning called the 70 weeks and the great tribulation by a guy named Philip Morrow. Okay. And I don't, uh, I don't even remember why I have this, but uh, I don't agree with everything on there either, mm -hmm. but it certainly gives you some things to start thinking about. Uh, Gary DeMar wrote a book called last day's madness. And he walks through the Olivet discourse mm. and shows how it is fulfilled in 70 AD. Again, I don't know that I agree with everything. One of the questions, so I'm, you know, would be put in the camp of a, uh, partial preterist i believe right uh matthew 24 mostly was fulfilled in 70 a.d but pretty much everybody who's not a full preterist and i'm not a full preterist i think full preterism is heresy because it it says that jesus's return was in 70 a.d and we're living in the new heavens and new earth so not right. there but uh so any of us who see any fulfillment of the olivet discourse in 70 a.d we have to pick a place that says now Jesus has turned his attention to the future. Uh, and that's a hard one because uh, it, it could be several places, several, several of the place, several of the statements could be fulfilled in 70 AD could be fulfilled in the future. Maybe we should spend a whole uh, episode walking through the Olivet discourse. That'd anyway, be good. Uh, Gary, no, DeBar, I was say, Gary DeBar. And then there are some people actually just sidebar who believe that Jesus has come back multiple times, not just yes. 80, 70. So there, yes. there are those people. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some good places to start. Mm -hmm. Be careful when you go down this path. Again, you'll get into some preterism stuff and uh, you can go too, way, way too far. Uh, Sproul, you mentioned him earlier. He wrote a book, uh, Jesus, uh, Last Days According to Jesus, I believe it was called. 
And he walks through a partial preterist view of the Olivet Discourse and, and does, in typical Sproul fashion, does a great job with it. So those are some places to get started, I would say. And uh, yeah, I would just encourage people to do it. And and you can get so caught up in it that it, like that's all you are. And that's mm-hmm. not necessarily where-, where Let me give one more be. plug. Yeah. Uh, back almost 20 years ago, I did a series called uh, Promise and Fulfillment. And it walks through the major narratives of the Old Testament and Daniel, I handled Daniel nine, Daniel 9 in the 70 weeks, and then the Olivet Discourse. And tr- that's what I'm trying to show is the kingdom of God, the Olivet Discourse, all of these things are talking about the, uh, the, the coming of the kingdom, which Jesus brought with him, and the fall of Jerusalem. And, uh, and I've had some people tell me it's the most important thing i've ever done oh, theologically nice. and is that and on so cross on. the so crown can they it is that? yeah so we'll put a link in the in the show notes people can take a look you know it feels mm-hmm. like um the way a non-calvinist doesn't understand the doctrines of grace is the same way a person who doesn't understand amillennialism millennialism or post-millennialism believes everyone is a full preterist like i've had that discussion like preterism isn't the answer i'm like well, i'm not a preterist like well but 87 i'm like what are you talking about that's not so It's a very similar kind of, but one of the things they could learn and study that is at newcovenschooltheology.org. The university is now called a university. You got multiple (laughs) options there um, through uh, online learning. Um, Basically, I have this right, $250 a class. Um, People can uh, get an MDiv. They can audit. It's 50 bucks to audit. Just learn and no one ever was hurt from growing in knowledge, like listening to this podcast, we should charge for that. It's how good this thing is, I tell you. <laughs> but, uh, and it walks through, is it six week courses? Sound about right. And four uh, week, four week courses. And you can uh, get good quality teaching, but um, it's, it's really important stuff. And it's not just the, the book knowledge. It's, it's practical stuff that the people who want to be pastors and elders need. Yeah. So just to reiterate, the courses are four weeks long. And they're Monday and Tuesday nights, three hours each night. So it's a lot packed into four weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but four weeks to cover every subject that we uh, that we do. And yes, you can audit for 50 bucks. You can get an MDiv or a certificate of biblical theology. Both of those, the course of work is exactly the same. Uh, so the courses are 250 for that. And then if you're going for the MDiv, then there are the six practical modules where we work through with your local church to make sure you're getting the uh, practical training and right. experience you need. That's really good because you'll tie it in with the church. You're still getting the things. Hey, do you do this? And a lot of churches probably already do the stuff that you would want them to do when it comes to training men and thinking about sending them to seminary. Now they don't have to do that, which is the good thing. So, and uh, one of the things you want people to do, we want everyone to do. It's the reason we talk about 8070. It's the reason we talk about cultural things here and, and, and theology is we want people to do what? Be intentionally Christ obsessed in all things. 